0: Love Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Simon, and the show, as usual, is The Stories We Live By. And today I am really very happy and proud to have a friend and colleague, Dr. Grace Jackson, uh, on the show. And I'm going to read her biography. And uh, at any point, you would like to um, call in and ask questions of Dr. Jackson. That would be terrific. Uh, Grace, are you there? I sure am. Great. Uh, Dr. Jackson is a board-certified psychiatrist who graduated summa cum laude from California Lutheran University with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and a Bachelor of Science in Biology. I guess you like staying in school, Grace. (laughs) well as a Master's degree in Public Administration. She earned her medical degree from the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in 1996 and completed her internship and residency while in the U.S. Navy. In the spring of 2001, Dr. Jackson resigned her Naval Commission for reasons of professional conscience. The basis of her objection to Navy psychiatry was her growing realization that the existing model of care was unnecessary I'm sorry, unnecessarily harmful to her patients. Since receiving an honorable discharge in the spring of 2002, Dr. Jackson has extensively researched the toxicity, the poison, if you will, of psychiatric medications. She has lectured widely in the United States and Europe in an effort to educate others about the limitations and dangers of these drugs. Dr. Jackson has served as a consultant to the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, Uh, a non-profit organization based in Anchorage, Alaska. She has worked clinically in the North Carolina Department of Corrections, the Veterans Administration System, and private practice. Dr. Jackson is the author of many peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, most recently contributing to Sammy Tamimi. Did I say that right?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And Jonathan Leo's Rethinking ADHD. Dr. Jackson's first book, which I can tell you is a terrific, terrific book, Rethinking Psychiatric Drugs, A Guide for Informed Consent, 2005, exposes the current crisis in medical ethics and underscores the urgent need to protect the rights of consumers and clinicians who wish to participate in drug-free care. Welcome.
1: Well, nice to be with you, Larry. Thanks for inviting me to be with you.
0: My pleasure. Uh First question: What was your crisis of conscience while you were serving in the navy?
1: <laughs> How much time do we have? I basically. We have plenty
0: just... of time. Don't worry. Of time.
1: Well, the crisis of conscience was uh, keeping my eyes open and watching what was actually happening to the patients right in front of me, and there were many different things that were informing my evolution, so to speak. Uh, but that was that was probably one of the key parts the other element was an exposure to something other than the biological reductionism that is to say uh, a reduction of all the things which a human experiences are being predicted by the brain or predicted by allegedly predicted by the genes
0: uh-huh so and what does that like involve say, where,
1: where did that go or what's that
0: yeah where does that go i mean what why
1: well, what happened was uh, I was basically, well, let me back up and say what drew me to psychiatry in the first place, because that's probably a better, part, a better place to begin the story. When right. I was uh, an undergrad, I was very intrigued uh, studying political science, and then uh, was out of school. I taught for a little bit. Uh, that's when I was working on the master's degree, and then went back to pursue a second degree in biology as a part of a pre-medical, uh, pre-medical school curriculum. Uh And what was drawing me to medicine at the time is I had always been frustrated by an inability to communicate with others, um, the idea of the otherness or the the other person whom we really can't connect with or understand. Part of my undergraduate experience was studying foreign languages. So I eventually came to the point where I was hoping that medicine, i.e. healing, would be one of the universal languages. In other words, one could go anywhere on the planet, and if you could deliver interventions that could be helpful to someone who was suffering physically, especially. Uh-huh. I thought that would be, boy, what a what a great role to fulfill in, in one's life. So I really stepped into medicine sort of continuing some of the idealism that had drawn me into political science in terms of trying right. to understand other cultures. Okay, so I looked at psychiatry before i went to medical school as the part of medicine that was really trying to understand the entire person not just the soul, min- if you will exactly, not just ministering to the body like a broken car, like a, a machine but trying to understand the fact that each car was very unique that the engine in each machine, the, the machine in each car the engine in each car was, was somehow different because the car was being, a dri- di- being driven in a different direction or going different places So long story short, I thought psychiatry was, at that point in time, we're talking about the late 1980s, headed in quite a different direction than the one that eventually occurred. I went to medical school between 1992 and 1996, completed my residency in the year 2000. And this time frame, 1992 through 2000, is a very pivotal time to be going through one's psychiatric education in the United States Uh uh, for a lot of different reasons. But the crisis that, that really occurred for me was to appreciate uh, the fact that, number one, uh, I was being indoctrinated. Uh, number two, if you really paid attention to what was happening around you or happening in, my ca- in this case to my patients, um, I could see that what I was being told was not really jiving with the lived experience of the patients. And, and number three, if one really backed up and, and took a careful look at history, the history of psychiatry, the philosophy of psychiatry, and then actually started to research what the different interventions were really doing. Um, you can't be any place but in a place of extreme um, psychological and, and uh, we'd say, soulful anguish. And that's really the place I was in. It was absolute anguish to go to work. Well, what, what
0: did you see this, this new model uh, doing to people? What was um, being done to them? Can you give well, us some examples?
1: Sure. Give you some examples. Um, well, one of the, the easiest ones is to see that people are not really uh, progressing. That uh, people are existing in a quasi-numbed state. I guess you could say, sort of anesthetized, and not really going on to make significant improvements, but staying as uh, as invalids. Now, for some people, they may have a lot of different reasons for choosing this. Uh, This may be a role that becomes comfortable on some level, either for conscious or unconscious reasons, Um, but in in a lot of cases, people just really weren't progressing. They don't become unstuck. They actually become permanent, quote-unquote,
0: patients. Stuck where? Give give me an example. How does someone someone get stuck?
1: Um. Someone gets stuck in terms of staying at home each day with the blinds drawn and absolutely terrified of going out of the house, except for a couple of appointments to get their Zyprexa refilled. Somebody gets stuck because they're unable to actually take their children to school each day without stopping in the driveway to count 15 ducks in a row or to start over again because the 15 ducks haven't stopped. Somebody uh-huh. gets stuck because they really can't... Uh, can't live their life in a way that prevents them from being a victim or seeing themselves in that role. So the stuckness is in terms of living in between appointments to get medications refilled, and there's a lot of conditioning that goes on here, skinnerian conditioning or operant conditioning, in terms of what patients are schooled to say and what doctors are schooled, how they're schooled to respond. Right.
0: Let me ask you the hard question, okay? Because I've been around in the field for a long time, and I remember the years of the 90s. It was sure. called the Decade of the Brain. Right. Yes. Yeah. And all of these people who act this way, who can't get off the driveway or, or who are too depressed to leave the house, uh, were told and are told and the doctors told them that they have some kind of a brain chemical imbalance. Right. And if that's so... Wouldn't medicine be the very best thing for them?
1: Yes and no. Uh, The thing I tried to to say in one of the chapters of my book was to distinguish what really happened in this country in 1992, my my first year of medical school. Now, this was never pointed out to me that this is what was happening, but what I have since learned is that this was extremely important. 1992 was really the beginning of something called evidence-based medicine. Uh Now. That has a very specific connotation for doctors in the United States. This is the point in time when, can you hear me okay?
0: Oh, yeah, that's okay. fine. Okay,
1: great. Uh, this is a point in time when, uh, when the, the idea here became that uh, doctors were under increasing pressure to conform their behaviors in terms of their practice with patients to an identified set of uh, parameters or guidelines that were being put out by so-called experts. Now, why is this a, a bad thing? Well, it's not. it doesn't sound on the surface like it would be bad or harmful. But you, the question to be asked would be, well, how is this different than what came before? Well, that's really the question. What came before the onset of evidence-based medicine is something that I call rational medicine. The difference being rational medicine is trying to go, into the laboratory, if necessary, and try to understand the actual cause, the fundamental cause of a person's disease or symptoms. Evidence-based medicine was, in a way, simply a, a tool of uh, marketing tool for the pharmaceutical companies uh. or or makers of devices to actually fit or mold the diseases around the interventions. So instead of having a rational form of medical care that would try to find out what causes high blood pressure, find out what causes diabetes, and let's deliver the uh, intervention or the medicine that corrects Uh the underlying cause, evidence-based medicine came along and said, forget that. It takes too long. We don't need to do it. Let's just develop guidelines to actually market the drugs that seem to be handling the symptoms. They're two very different approaches to medicine. So when you ask the question, what's wrong with giving medicine to someone who has a chemical imbalance in their brain, maybe nothing if we understood that there was a chemical imbalance and if we could actually define what it was. I'll give you an example. Um, We have known for many years that uh, certain vitamin deficiencies, uh, pellagra, for instance, uh, vitamin B12, folate deficiencies, can result in dementia, uh, really profound problems in terms of cognitive processing. Similarly, there are problems with producing too, too much homocysteine, uh, another amino acid in the brain, that can actually increase seizures um, ah. or also make cognitive processing worse. So we know that there is certainly a chemical aspect to how our brain works and how we're able to process. But that has not been uh, in any way proven for very complex behaviors or very complex um, types of thoughts which psychiatry... such as
0: people sitting in their house terrified or counting ducks on the driveway
1: exactly yeah it, it's not it 's not a bad idea at all to begin to investigate whether or not we might have uh, a cause, but we're in no where, in no way are we actually there or do we know that um, you know the other thing too Larry, is as, as you and I have spoken and written back and forth you know i 've tried to crystallize my thinking on what is the difference between a neurologist. Uh, a doctor who specializes in understanding diseases of the brain, and a psychiatrist, a doctor who is uh, supposed to be specializing in understanding problems and treating the soul, psyche. And the best I can come up with an answer at this particular point in time, because my thoughts are always evolving and hopefully improving in some way, I, I would say that the neurologist is working with the brain of a person as an object, and is trying to understand what I would call instrumental problems. In other words, uh-huh. the brain is not perceiving something correctly. The eyeball is not focusing correctly. The ear the damaged, has a damaged nerve and can't actually transmit signals to the brain. So it's focused on the brain as a machine. The way I look at the psyche or the psychiatrist's role is to be sure that those problems are not present, because if they are present, we call them neurological problems,
0: Right, but and they're real, he, true medical problems.
1: And they're true medical problems, but the difference, what what really separates psychiatry from neurology, in in my opinion, is the fact that the psychiatrist's province is really in the realm of philosophy or religion, meaning that the psychiatrist is now looking at the person in terms of a subject. So you have the neurologist who's working with the broken brain as an object. You have the psychiatrist who is interested in how the brain is being used by the eye, being used by the whole person, the subject, and, and it's actually in the province of uh, moral judgments, like what is considered uh, too slow, what is considered too fast, what is considered moral, what is considered appropriate behavior. Right. So very, very different.
0: Very different. Right. And so what you saw when you came became a psychiatrist is that the entire field, and this includes my field, psychology, because you see that one of the things I was always fascinated by is that if, in fact, uh, people who hallucinate or can't get off the bed because they're too depressed and sad, if these things really are medical problems, how would somebody like me be licensed by New York State to treat them? It would be absurd. I mean, if I went and treated a child uh, uh, for a sore throat, or I gave somebody an electrocardiogram, they would arrest me and put me in jail.
1: <laughs> right? I think you're absolutely right. It's a great question. I've never heard anybody put it this way, but it's, it's right? really well, hard. I wasn't. Very and true. here, I, w-
0: I worked in a clinic in a hospital, and the person who handed out the cases was a social worker. Right? Yeah. None of Can us give... went to medical school. Sure. Can so I the give question you... then became, yeah. Yeah. what did the psychiatrist do that different than what we did? Yeah. and at the point at which they stopped doing anything like we did which was to talk to people about the pain in their souls and only gave them these drugs what was going on well We're, go ahead yeah, i'm sorry
1: no no i th- i think you're you're really onto something pivotal because uh here here's what's so strange uh, and i've talked about this before in other contexts people probably don't realize or at least during during all of my training i don't imagine this has changed one bit When you're going through your training as a psychiatrist, you spend a great deal of time in the emergency rooms. Why? That's where you scoop up your your patient load and admit them to the hospital. So anyone who's going through their training as a psychiatrist in the United States today will understand the point I'm just about to make. And that is the most important thing that comes out of a psychiatrist. Intern, psychiatry intern's mouth or a psychiatry resident's mouth. The very first question when we set foot in the emergency room is to go to the emergency room doctor who is, who is in charge of our patient, the one we've been called to see, and to ask the following question, have you completed the medical clearance? Now, anyone who is a psychiatrist is going to know what that means, but your listeners may not, and let me explain why this is important. When a doctor, such as myself, is called to see someone and we ask the word, Have you completed the medical clearance? We are asking the emergency room doctor to say to us, yes or no, this person has a medical condition causing the symptoms. What does that mean? That means that the emergency room doctor or doctors will have ruled out the presence of a head injury, uh, suspicious of uh, concern about intoxication or withdrawal from some drug, whether it's legal or illegal, uh, prescription or otherwise, Um, whether or not this person may have um, suffered head trauma in the past and could be having symptoms from a concussion, whether or not this person could have a brain tumor or an infection in the brain that could be causing the symptoms, whether or not this person could have an illness somewhere else in the body that could be causing the symptoms, such as an endocrine abnormality, uh, Cushing's disease, Addison's disease, diabetes, um, or thyroid abnormalities, just as some of them, and on and on. But there are a whole list of true medical physiological illnesses slash diseases that a psychiatrist is trained to look for before he or she would ever make the diagnosis of a, quote, a psychiatric disorder, mental illness. Uh So it's only through this distinction. um, I can't really explain it any more clearly than to say the way I felt about it and still feel about it is my role as a psychiatrist is to put on the mantle of doctor and to go into seeing any person and to say, yes or no, this person has a medical condition which could be affecting the brain and therefore producing these symptoms. Uh, We were talking about the, the hallucination, for example. Versus once you have not found any evidence for a disease, you now step over a different line, and now you're in the territory of metaphor, you're in the territory of what some people would say hermeneutic exegesis of the soul. In other words, now I am relating to this person not as a broken car engine. I am now relating to this person as the driver in the car. Uh-huh. Very, very, very different, very different things. Is the car engine broken or is the person in the car driving differently? Now this necessarily goes back to your previous show where you were talking about the care and feeding of the soul yes. and and Douglas uh, was it Hofstadter the book Hofstadter, which is, yeah. great okay he's getting to this fundamental question what is the I the the capital I what is the self is really what we're talking about yes indeed and what happened in the 1990s uh, why you experienced the same thing that I did where psychologists are being told that they can take care of brain diseases. And psychiatrists are ignoring the fact that there's a soul, is because the entire country decided that there is no I. And so everybody has given up on this notion that there's Grace, something. Yeah. you
0: realize we've just discovered something.
1: Oh, America really?
0: lost its soul.
1: Oh, my goodness. And so much of the rest of the world would say, We knew that. Uh, we've been trying to tell America that for 200 years.
0: We lost <laughs> our soul, Grace. And well, you know what? It explains yeah. an awful lot.
1: Yeah, you know, well, I'll tell you, you know, the other way I I looked at this, I was uh, invited to give a lecture uh, in New Orleans um, by one of our our friends down there in Florida, Marsha Barbacki, and uh, she had uh, given me an invitation to this group. So while I was speaking there in January, I thought, well, how am I going to explain to people clearly um, what really happened? So I thought of Star Trek, and uh, did you ever see Star Trek on TV? One of my favorite shows. Okay, so here's how I explained it in that lecture. I said, well, let me explain the transformation, how America, now that you and I are using this term, lost its soul, lost its eye. I said, let's take a look at how the doctor changed. Okay, so if you remember the very first series, Bones, right, Dr. Leonard McCoy, right. was the doctor on Star Trek. Now, he was sort of the humanist, right? He yeah. had to constantly mediate between this logic freak, the Vulcan, right, Spock, right. who was all logic, pure rationality, and the, the raw, re- unrestrained id of Captain Kirk, who had yes. uh, you know the, the females on every planet, and complete complete uh, emotions everywhere. Right. And McCoy represented this intermediary between man's id and, and man's rational ego. What we, we would call, if we were using uh, you know Freudian cosmology. Right. And so, in a sense, McCoy represented the super superego function, man's consciousness and the conscience aspect. Right. Okay, so that was, one person did it all, right? One doctor, he did all this for you. Okay, the next TV show that came along was in the 1980s, actually late 80s through 1994. So this is my medical school period, right, the start of it. The next Star Trek show was called Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. Now, what did they do? Their doctor, Dr. Crusher, um, if you read on the Paramount Movie Studios description of who this person was, she was a research clinician. And if you remember also on that program, they had a counselor named Deanna Troy, uh-huh. a psychologist, right? right? Now, the thing about Counselor Troy is that she was half betazoid, meaning she was half human and half, half alien. So by the time we came into the 19, late 80s and late 90s, right, you, you didn't go to see a doctor for everything that is happening to you like you did with Dr. McCoy. You, you went to see an alien to explain your, your emotional side, and right. you went to Dr. Crusher for a brain problem. Right. Very important. Now One of the latest, uh, not the last TV shows of, of Star Trek, but the next two last, was called Star Trek Voyager. Now, that was on TV between 1995 and 2001. Now, what happened by then? By then, there was no human doctor at all. The doctor on that program was an emergency medical hologram who had been activated in 20- 2071.
0: Right. Right. So you didn't <laughs> even
1: go to a human or an alien, you went to a computer.
0: You know, now, that's then, fantastic. I, 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 you know, I, I'm familiar with the shows, but you're absolutely right. Well, this and is the a transition perfect... really oh. uh, um, reflects what was going on in our larger society. You bet. But and now you is, went to a doctor, sure. you weren't treated as a soul in pain. No. You were treated as a brain that needed tinkering.
1: Absolutely. And if a tune-up. If you needed a tune-up. And if you did need a soul, a soul tune-up, you were seen by a person who was half alien. Humans could no longer do that function. Right. And by the time it came to the latest uh, uh, iteration of the program, uh, you weren't even seen by a human at all. You were seen by a computer hologram. Now, what's fascinating about this, quite honestly, is the questions arise. Does, you know, does life reflect art or does art reflect life? Clearly the writers of this program understood what was happening and had either very clever consultants or wanted to give a nudge to American society to think more. Interesting, I think the, uh, the actor, Robert Picardo, who played the hologram on Star Trek Voyager, has written a book about his experiences because playing a computer, a computer doctor had a profound impact on him personally in terms of the neuroethics questions and, and what uh-huh. is happening with technology. So he would be a great person to get on your show, uh, if you could get him, because that would be a fabulous question to ask him. What do you yeah, think is That would be on? a
0: really good question.
1: Wouldn't it be great? Fact,
0: I'm going to pursue that.
1: Yeah, and say, you know, what, what was it like to play a computer playing a doctor? And he's got some real insights, because uh, there were some episodes on that program that were really profound in terms you of You'll have to get me the ball. name of the book. Oh, I will. I'll find it, and then uh, hopefully you can get him because I would love, love to hear somebody interview him on these
0: questions. Yeah, that would really be terrific.
1: Wouldn't it be awesome?
0: Now, i am going to move in another slightly different direction. Sure. And that is, what were these drugs actually doing to the brain and the soul? Can we talk a little bit about that? Because in sure. Rethinking Psychiatric Drugs, uh, which really is probably the best, detailed piece of information I've ever seen uh, both for a lay person and for a professional you uh, have a prodigious knowledge a really incredible knowledge of what these drugs do uh, that may not be warranted or may not people will not want it done particularly if the normal brain if the brain of a person suffering emotionally with the soul or the eye is healthy these drugs have an effect by imbalancing the brain. Sure.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for your, your generous comments and compliments because uh, I, I hope you've had the same same thoughts, or, or perhaps you've had the same thoughts as a writer, and and uh, you, if you're at all hoping that your writing is, is helpful to others, that you look back on it and say, geez, I know so much more now. So I'm a little bit critical of, of what I've done in the past and, and hoping to yes. improve on it. But let me let me just say this you're you're entirely right. I I think you just framed this beautifully. The the context for what the medicines are doing are in this context of what we have become as a society or a culture that the concept that we no longer value the eye. We no longer want to even
0: Hello? Hello? Hello, Dr. Jackson. I think Dr. Jackson is got cut off. Um, hello?
1: Hi, we're having. can you hear me now?
0: Yeah, I can hear you. What happened?
1: Oh, we're having a very powerful electrical storm.
0: Oh, but, wow. Where are yeah. you? Where are you, actually?
1: In uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, so off oh. the coast. But this oh. probably will not, not long, last too long, but if we okay. get cut off, that's That's wonderful. interesting.
0: You're, you've got to vote today in the... Uh... <laughs> You have the big primary there today.
1: Uh, I think it's tomorrow. Oh, our, yes, it's uh, well, tomorrow, the kind of early voting. Yeah. See, what
0: happened to me after I retired, Grace? My yeah. brain oozes now. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: okay. A lot of people ooze.
0: I, lose, I lose. Every day is like any other day, so it really doesn't <laughs>
1: matter.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Now, let's go back to, to the more important thing the, 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 yeah, the well, just, just of going drug.
1: The question what do these drugs do and, and I think you know framing it in the context of what, what we have become as a society or a culture right. is critical we, we have to understand that as a culture we are no longer valuing the concept of a larger self whether we call that soul or consciousness or whatever term we use the idea that there is an aspect of the self that can be regarding of the self so uh, what we would, some people would say, the observing ego, you know, the idea that there is, a, or a larger part of our self, uh, some people would call this the, the autonoetic self, in other words, the part of us, I like the way you say the real core, like if you really want to hurt someone, right, you want to you stab them in their core, yes. Well, what is, that, what is that core, right, well, if you're an artist, Uh, The core is that part of you that creates. It's the part of you that at age six or age eight, if you were Beethoven or Mozart or Wagner, you know, you were writing your first piece at age 12. That core, that core of the self. So when we speak about what is that core, that is exactly the thing that uh, our society, America, in the year 2008 seems to have disregarded and no longer values. What are these medications doing? Uh, You know, it's hard to make comments on your program without getting political. Because the real issues are what does this mean for a a society that would call itself democratic? You know, if if you knock out the parts of the self that are thinking and the parts of the self that are self-critical and reflective, you're really talking about creating a culture that is no longer capable of democracy.
0: You're talking about George Orwell. Exactly. You're talking about Huxley, Brave New World.
1: Entirely. And and I don't mean to limit it just to the United States, but I'm saying that we're talking about an Orwellian and a Huxleyan dystopic or dystopia where we are no longer trusting people to be self-governing. And that's what, okay, why would I say these drugs are taking away the capacity for self-governance? Well, one of the things I was really touched by in your last program was when you made the beautiful, beautiful point of saying what do people most fear, cancer or Alzheimer's? Please, give me cancer. I mean, I don't yes. want it. But yes. if I have to choose it, give me something that leaves my brain intact so I can begin to think about how I want my cancer treated. Yes. You know, do I want to be treated humanely? Can I, still, can I still read poetry? Can I still listen to music and cry when I hear but, you know, how about, about this, a butterfly?
0: Right. If yeah. I have to face cancer and I have to right. face my death, don't I want right. to do it creatively? Oh, oh. Good point. Don't I want to but be want... able to say I'm sorry to those who I may have hurt? Do I want to face my death with some kind of dignity? See, oh, because very... when my car goes bad, I throw the car out. You don't worry about the machine.
1: That's and, right. and one
0: of the things that makes me crazy about all of this is that when you kill off the soul, you kill off that total ability to be creative, not only as an individual facing death, mm-hmm. but as oh, a citizen, as part of a great country.
1: Uh, You're talking, I'm listening to you, and you know the image I just had? uh, I was thinking about these remote control rats that they're building at MIT. Have you seen any of the pictures? No, that I'm missing. Oh, okay. Well, they're trying to come up with a way to actually create technologies that will overdrive, or or, how to put the right term, uh, actually supplant the uh, internally-driven behaviors. So, now, this this can have good intentions in terms of someone who has had, let's say, a a profound stroke or is missing a part of the brain from an accident. Right. But there are some real uh, scary Orwellian thoughts when you think about putting electrodes into somebody's head. And they they tried this actually in Japan. They were steering a person. They actually um, were doing some electronic implantations and activating them and trying to... They could actually stimulate the person to turn in a certain direction. Um, So the question is... What does it actually mean? Whether we do this with electrodes that are being implanted surgically or whether we design chemicals or or genetic controls that would begin altering the person, Uh, those are profound questions of ethics. What I can tell you right now, not that we're at that point, but what the medicines are doing that doctors are not being told about, and frankly, unless they're interested in this, would not have the time to research it, uh, these medicines are essentially um, not antidepressant, not antipsychotic. They're pro-dementic. Uh, I don't think that's a real word, but I'm, I'm making that up here. What these I like
0: that, though. In other words, they, they cause dementia.
1: They really do. The neuroleptics, for instance, increase the brain levels of apolipoprotein D, D like delta, now everybody knows that apolipoprotein E is supposedly the bad fatty protein that gets deposited in some of these abnormal uh, abnormal proteins and in, in the brain to actually create Alzheimer's dementia. But now there is there is more evidence to demonstrate that apolipoprotein D is also a problem. Well, this is something that the new antipsychotics are increasing. So we should really be terrified, not just because we're giving these drugs to older people who may or may not already have Alzheimer's. We have an FDA, Food and Drug Administration, that has just approved this class of drugs for children. So we are giving, quote-unquote, autistic children, Asperger's children, all these kids who are having developmental difficulties for numerous reasons, we're now giving them drugs that are guaranteed to cripple their brain. Now, what does this mean as a society and a culture? I don't know what it means. It means that, we, number one, that we have a psychiatric profession and a neurological profession that apparently do not care at all about the basic science. I'm speechless. And, yeah, you know, no, I, 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 I
0: Something's been happening on my board. Uh, yes. Are you still having a storm? Yes, we are. Oh, because I hear uh, you, and okay. somebody just wrote to me uh, yes. on my chat that he can't hear. Oh dear. So I don't okay. know. It, it, it's recording, though. I, I I have faith that that it's recording. Um, okay. If if there is anybody out there who does hear uh, Doctor yeah. Jackson and I, either write me a uh, a note that you hear, that yeah. you're uh, present in the conversation. Um, I can't tell until I okay. get off. Well, yeah. Hello.
1: All I can say. Hi. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, no, and we can, I have, uh, Marion, BG, I hear you very well. Okay, oh so I think we're okay.
1: Good. Well, all I can say is it takes, uh, quite honestly, you know, and, and this is not to, to necessarily bash all the doctors who are just doing what they've been told to do. The the point is, um, um, I, I have to apologize. I'm, I'm in a Holocaust mentality because Friday was Day of Remembrance, and I had a wonderful opportunity to hear Richard Wagner. Uh, I'm sorry, God, Gottfried Wagner, the great-grandson of Richard Wagner, uh-huh. who is involved in dialogues um, with, with the Jewish community to try and do healing, atonement, for the atrocities of the Shoah, and so the Holocaust mentality is very much with me when I speak with you today because of, uh, in a narrower sense, or maybe not so narrow, what is happening in terms of a Holocaust mentality within psychiatry and neurology, that is, nobody speaks up. Nobody wants to actually point out the, the elephant in the room that these are drugs that are actually toxic to the brain, even in the doses that are being used.
0: Now, we're and, not just talking about the uh, neuroleptics or the things that are getting no, no, no. so-called schizophrenia. Uh,
1: no, we're I'm, I'm speaking. talking about the
0: antidepressants, the Prozac and the Paxil and all of that stuff.
1: Sure. What, what I've spent the past five years doing, um, or backing up to 2002, uh, six years, um, doing with my life, uh, is to really understand what's happening at a scientific level. And that's been almost full-time research whenever I can afford to do it, uh, to actually go in and pull the fundamental science papers. Now, obviously, we can't take humans and ethically administer drugs, euthanize them, and examine their brain tissue. But that, to the extent that we can try and use that model, uh, it's done in animals. And what we see from animal study after animal study after animal study are the markers um, of different kinds of brain damage. And, and quite simplistically, if you really want to prove that something is a brain toxin, you look for cell death. Well, this has been demonstrated in many different studies using the doses that are as close to what we, or what we think are the doses that parallel the doses that humans are taking. And what we are finding is that the medications that people are taking are actually causing quite a bit of cell death. Now, I have studied that in terms of the stimulant medications, in terms of the antipsychotic medications, in terms of the antidepressants. Uh, there's some evidence for this with certain of the, uh, the an- anxiety meds, not all. The right. anticonvulsants and lithium are two of the biggest ones that have been extremely, extremely toxic to the brain. Um, and Here's an interesting phenomenon. The anticonvulsants, these are the anti-seizure medicines, were used in neurology but then picked up by the psychiatry profession for the treatment of quote-unquote bipolar manic depression illness and now essentially used for anything. And so what's interesting about this is the neurology community over the years has come to realize, although it's uh, implicit, it's never explicitly stated. There's no formal public apology. But the drugs like Dilantin, the drugs that were the barbiturates, neprobanate, these early anticonvulsants were profoundly toxic to the brain, killing the brain, uh, causing cognitive slowing, cognitive problems that were not temporary. And so the neurology community was very happy to embrace newer treatments, some of the newer anticonvulsants. Why? Because some of them began to realize, holy smoke, those other drugs were actually killing brain cells.
0: You know, let's go back to something else, Grace. I think there are two critical issues that come up here, although what you're saying, of course, is is, is important and more than interesting. I want to go back to the children. Right. At what age is a child's brain first formed? Uh... In other words, developmentally. I was always told about three years of age before basically the interconnections are there.
1: Oh, I, I think that this really gets into the, the area of philosophy. Um, let, me, let me explain. Well, let me, let me answer the question in two ways. Number one, there's a different answer in terms of the development of the self, which is going to be the, the whole self or what you said, the I, and then the brain in terms of the piece of the card, the machine. What was, what was uh, for many years hegemony, I mean the dogma, in neuroscience, and even in medical school when I went there, is that you're born with a finite number of cells, the maximum number of neurons, okay, what was even this has now been changed, but there are basically two different kinds of cells in the brain. Neurons, which are the cells that people were typically taught to think about as the messengers, the ones sending right. messages, and support cells, glia, that, that do the nourishment. Well, even that's been turned upside down. Now the two of them seem to work in unison, and you can't really separate out what is sending the message all the time. Some of the glial cells send message. Right, but the point is
0: that that brain has to develop, and there really can't be a healthy eye or soul if the brain is damaged.
1: Right, and here's the problem. And now they're uh, giving drugs to children at incredibly young ages. Yeah, and I didn't really answer your question. I apologize because I get rambling. Uh, The white matter of the brain, the the fatty lining around cells, is continually, continually, uh, continually formed even into the fourth decade of life, okay. So they're now found out that myelination continues through the age of 40. Ah. So it used to be said, you know, you're you're finished, right, when you're when you're uh, in your teen teen years. Right. Your sel- your brain's just sort of uh, trimming trimming circuits called pruning. And it is true that the maximum number of cells that people probably have in the brain, maybe this will be turned over tomorrow by new research, but the current thinking is that children reach the maximum number of brain cells about the age of six or seven. And then throughout the rest of their childhood and adolescence, they are developing circuits called synaptogenesis. And then those circuits are being trimmed, just like a rose bush. And what you use, is being strengthened, and what you, don't, what you don't use, you lose. And that was the thought, that was the thinking for many, many years. Right. Now, in the 1990s, more and more research was being done, even though some of this research had been done way back in the early 20th century, it was ignored. But now they're finding that there's continuous turnover of cells in some regions of the brain, like the hippocampus, the subventricular zone, around the ventricles, and some of these cells appear to have the ability to replace cells, but nobody really knows what their function ultimately will be and what the normal turnover is.
0: But, the but all line of is, this is being interfered with on a very massive basis, isn't it?
1: Oh, it is being interfered with on a massive basis and at a point in development when people are... Uh, I wouldn't say most susceptible, but at a point in life when it is the most dangerous time to be doing it. You know, there's a reason, right, Larry, that, that my parents grew up telling us kids, please don't use don't use pot, don't use cocaine, right. don't use L S D. Why? Because they were not because not just because these are substances that are illegal, but because there was a parental concern that you would be doing something that was not into the overall health benefit of your developing child whom you loved.
0: Yes. Now tell me, Grace, how is it possible for someone to go through medical school and not know what you're telling me or ignore it? How is (laughs) it possible?
1: Great question. Uh, You you can still hear me?
0: I'm hearing you. I think we're all hearing you, loud and clear. Well,
1: uh, terrific. I've got to go back to this Holocaust mentality. I mean, I hope your listeners won't be offended by this. No,
0: don't worry about my listeners being offended. Okay. This is my show.
1: If they want to be offended. offended, they could
0: be offended. I don't think anybody's being offended because everybody deep down knows that we're in very deep trouble here, Excellent. medically and ethically, etc. cetera.
1: Oh, good. Good. Well, let's stir it up. Uh, Stanley Milgram, right? I remember being an undergraduate at the University of Washington in 1980, 1981. No, this would have been 81, 82, taking a class. And they showed some of the Stanley Milgram experiments. Now, Milgram, right, was a psychologist, I think, at Yale. And he was trying to demonstrate how easy it is to get people to be obedient to authority. And the test design involved uh, Confederates, people who were acting, uh, play actors, um, who were being told to pretend they were a patient receiving shocks. Now, on the other side of a wall, the actual test subject, the person that the psychologist was trying to understand, was being told to press a button that would deliver a certain amount of electrical voltage to the actor on the other side of the screen. Now, the person who was participating in the study
0: did not say the whole thing. Grace, I'm going to interrupt you for a sure. second. Yeah. You know what we're going to have to do, Grace? We're going to have to continue yeah. this another time. But somebody's calling in. Hello? 818? I, can't, I don't know why I'm clicking, and they're not coming on. Shoot. Um, this is so interesting. It's eight one eight two seven two seven seven five five. They want to ask a question. They want to say something. Sure. I'm clicking and clicking and clicking, hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't help. And I don't know why. Hmm. Uh, you know what? Eight one eight two seven two seven seven five five. I can't figure this out. Maybe yeah. you should hang up and try it again. I'll see if I can get you on. Yeah. But in any event.
1: Yeah. Well how you, the question is how how is it that doctors couldn't know this? Yeah, how do they well, not
0: know this? How do they, I mean, not they know? they don't this?
1: know this for the reason of the Milgram experiment and, and Milgram was just trying to make a point that you could teach people to basically be obedient to we Oh, we just Grace.
0: Grace. Grace? Oh, we did. Okay. the show ended. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Good. Yeah. Um, are you, when you you free again, so we can just continue this?
1: Yeah, let's just continue. Uh, well, we could try for next week. Uh, I I haven't heard from these lawyers if I'm going up to New Jersey this week or, or just when. Well we'll see. We have um uh, actually we've got a hearing on the thirteenth is what I understand. So I might be uh out of the area on the thirteenth and maybe next week. Maybe we should try for a week, um a week from Monday, the nineteenth.
0: The nineteenth? Okay. Yeah. Uh actually they're telling me I do have a minute, but I don't know what people are gonna hear. I can't thank you enough for this.
1: Oh thanks. Oh, it's great. And,
0: um, this has been terrific. Same here. And I think everybody's going to enjoy the show when they listen. And uh, what, what you can do is, uh, by the way, we have friends that may be interested in this show.
1: Great. Yeah, uh, maybe not. Did or you let everybody
0: wouldn't. know? Uh, sure. On, on the uh, listserv, the ics listener. listserv. Talk Radio. Great. Okay, super. we're off.
1: Okay, and I'll talk, talk you to you I'll you. In great. fact, I'm going to call
0: you back in a minute, okay? Sounds super. Bye.
1: Bye.